Our scripture reading this morning comes out of Genesis 2, verses 4 through 24. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day of the Lord, um, God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust. He gave me a long one. <laughs> um, formed from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made the spring, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. For Adam was, not, was there, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer, please. Our Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning as we bow to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Megan. I think that's the longest passage I've asked anybody to read. You did awesome. Uh, with some Hebrew names in there, too. That's, I probably still wouldn't pronounce them correctly, so good job. Uh, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series today that I've entitled Storymakers, uh, Storytellers. And, you know, I, I, it's something that is kind of a, a central concept that's helped me think about uh, Scripture and the Bible and how it's meant to shape who I am and how I live my life. And I don't think that's unique to me. I think there's a universal dynamic to that. One of my f favorite authors is Eugene Peterson. He, he has such a talent for writing devotionally and helping uh, readers understand the heart of the story of the Bible. And uh, he describes human beings as meaning makers, that by our very nature we're wired to make meaning 
out of the world in which we live, our lives and the events in it ourselves, and even God. And it's true, if you think about it, if you think about your life, you look back on seasons in your life, whatever it may be, we tend to view our lives in terms of a story, right? We don't think of ourselves as abstract things or events in our life that are meaningful or powerful as being abstract or disconnected. Uh, particularly, you'll notice that if somebody tells you a story about something meaningful, they're sharing a story about how they interacted with that event, that person, that experience, and they're telling it in narrative form uh, to you. I think, uh, and John highlighted this, he kind of stole one of my sermon analogies right out the gate. We tend to think of our lives as a story that's mainly about us, right? Um, and even as Christians, I think that that's an unconscious habit that creeps into our heads and we live in a culture, especially the culture that we live in here in the West, and we live in a world that tells us that that's actually correct, that our lives are all about us and seeking what's good for us. And you know, one of the most important things I learned when I first started Bible college many years back is that there's three important questions that we should all ask when we approach the Bible. Uh, most of us, uh, when we don't know that the Bible is a story about God, we tend to approach scripture and we think, Wait, how is this about me? You know, I'm reading the scripture, what does this mean for me? How is it gonna make my life better? Uh, but one of the things a professor taught me that I, I still apply to this day is that the three questions we really want to ask of Scripture are these. When we read the story of the Bible, what is it telling us about God, first and foremost? That's its main goal. And secondly, in light of that, what does the Bible tell us about ourselves? And then third, how should that shape how we live? Pretty straightforward. Uh, and in doing that, when we read the Bible as a story that God's given to you and I uh, to know him and to know ourselves rightly, we, we undergo a paradigm shift. Instead of looking at our lives as something where we're looking for a place to fit God into, God's a new life hack that we're gonna use to just kill it for ourselves, uh, we begin to see that our lives are really a story that's meant to reflect God his nature, who he is, and what he means to us. And that the real privilege, our real joy, is found in realizing that we get to be a part of his story. And so that's gonna be the overarching theme uh, for the whole series. Instead of searching for meaning and value and significance in a story that we try and create for ourselves, uh, we see that God's created this beautiful story, and though we don't really deserve it, we get to be a part of it. Uh, and in doing that and living that out, it actually brings us the fulfillment and desire that we actually really want uh, in the first place. So the main idea I wanna consider together with you is that every one of our lives tells a story and God is actually the author. So first thing to think about in considering that uh, when we come up to Genesis 2 uh, is to ask ourselves, what story are we trying to tell in our lives? What story are we actually telling about ourselves? Now to understand the flaw and how we try and play that out, we don't have to go much further than Genesis 2. I had Megan read Genesis 2 for us, which gives us a picture of how we were created and who created us. If you go one chapter further, if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3, it talks about what's commonly referred to as the fall. It's where we fall into sin. In Genesis 3, man and a woman are living in perfect relationship with God. They have harmony with their creator. And uh, in the temptation to sin, 
Satan approaches them and he offers them two things. He says, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, here's what will happen. First, he lies, he says, you won't die. Uh, Second, he says, you will be like God. You will have knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God. He offers them autonomy, the ability to shape themselves, to create their own story outside of the God who created them. And third, when Eve looks at the fruit, one of the things that the text notes is that she saw that it was good for wisdom. She saw and she thought, I will be wise like God is wise. So what does that mean? In the human heart and the human mind, tempted by sin, when we fall into that, we set out to exist in a world where really we start out saying, well, maybe I'm equal with God. And then we get to a point where the temptation to be autonomous and outside of God overpowers us. And then we suddenly think that we are actually better than God. And it's only reasonable if we believe that we can exist in a world outside of God that we should really shape our own lives and our own stories. We become God to ourselves, right? That's the heart of the fall that we see in Genesis 3. And if you look in the world today at people that don't know Jesus, you'll see this playing out in individual lives and really in the world all around us. Instead of learning to live in the world in which God has created for us to live, living in his world, we actually live in a world where we think we get to determine whether he should exist in ours. We're the author of the story. God's a character that we get to decide whether he's a part of our story or not. You know, the the concept of storytelling and story receiving is a fundamental aspect of how we exist as human beings. Uh, If you think about it, all, all, you know, we always tease Rob about giving one billion sermon analogies about what? Great epics, right? Lord of the Rings. Um, Star Wars. You know, hopefully we'll never hear a sermon analogy about that again, but... What's the point in him using analogies like that? They tell these epic sweeping dramas that we feel drawn into. And whether it's um, you know, Marvel stories that appeal to you, classic stories from literature, they all have this effect on us that they draw us into a larger story where we begin to extrapolate and grab meaning for our own lives through the story that we're being drawn into. We all approach our everyday lives in the same way, whether we realize it or not. Uh, as John had mentioned, you know, social media, is, it's a wonderful thing. And I, I genuinely think that it's, it's neutral at the end of the day. It's not evil, it's not categorically good. I don't think it's necessarily bad or good. I think it's a pretty neutral thing. <clears throat> and there's many beautiful ways that people use it that are good, that promote good and healthy and right and true things. I see that all the time. One of my greatest joys as a pastor in our congregation is seeing many of you share these beautiful gifts that God has given you, whether it's in your marriage or being a parent or in things that you experience, blessings that God gives you, and sharing them with the world as a disciple because it points towards the giver of those blessings in your life. But social media also is a thing that can really tempt us to tell a story that's really more about us than about God. John highlighted that so well in the law passage. And as I was thinking about it this week, the thing that struck me is if you think about Instagram, Facebook, I won't say Twitter because I don't go on there and I heard it's just a train wreck, but 
Every post, every photo that you share is like a page out of a story that you are sharing with the world about yourself. They're all pages and chapters in a story that you are sharing with the world about yourself. Uh, and the story we share uh, reveals what we value. And it reveals what we desire deep in our hearts. Uh, and it communicates something to the world. Ultimately, we're communicating to the world something about us or something about God at the end of the day. I think about that all the time. Uh, my buddy Steve, um, one time some years back, if you know me, you know I love fishing. And uh, I love catching big tuna. One day years back, we were just talking on the phone, and he's like, hey man, how many pictures of you with dead fish do I need to see on Facebook before we're done here? I was like, you know, my first response was like, a million more. <laughs> but it kind of struck me, it's always stuck with me. When I go to post something, I'm like, what am I promoting here, that I'm a good fisherman? Am I telling you something about Brian, or am I sharing something that I'm enjoying? Uh, something that God's cultivated in me, an experience that God's given me to enjoy. And as I said, look, the world's going to tell you it's all about you. It's all about promoting you. It's all about seeing the delights in your hearts as informed by twisted and broken desires. And it's completely okay for you to do what's good for you. And if God's not going to get on board with that program, he needs to get out of the way. <clears throat> God says otherwise, right? If Genesis 2 tells us anything, it says that God created us in a way that we could actually experience the delight of a heart when it's connected to him. Uh, one of my favorite Christian philosophers uh, describes the dilemma this way. He says, the question for every one of us isn't whether you're going to believe, but who you're going to believe in. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do we really believe that we are our own best hope? And in that, he's highlighting the fact that we, when we set out to be the author of our own story and to promote ourselves, ingrained in that, at the heart of that belief, is the idea that we actually know what's best. And if we know what's best, then we should shape our lives in the way that serves us. That leads to the question that I was talking about, that I was taught early on. The most important thing to ask then of texts, especially like Genesis 2, the creation account, is what does the story of the Bible actually tell us about God first? Uh, you know, I'm a big Marvel fan. I'm currently indoctrinating my son, Jack, who's only two and a half in all things Marvel, especially Spider-Man. And uh, I was talking with Ellery uh, the other day, our 12-year-old, about why my favorite comic book hero has always been Spider-Man. And the reason why is because at the end of the day, it's really just an awkward teenager who's figuring out who he is. For him, that's in light of all these superpowers that he has. But I, I love Spider-Man's origin story because I identify with that. My, my entire early life could be encapsulated as a young, awkward kid who had no clue who he was or what he was doing. And, uh, when you think about stories like that, I think one of the ways that they have such a strong appeal, whether it's Marvel, the Lord of the Rings, is that they give you an origin story of people that you identify with. And they help you understand where those people came from and how that shapes their lives. Genesis 2 is your origin story. It's where you came from. 
And it actually also tells us the way that we're designed to operate in relationship uh, with God. There's all these, this is just a devotional look, but there's all these beautiful ways that we see God defining himself and who we are in our relationship with him in Genesis 2. Uh, from beginning to end, his grace is on display in a multitude of ways, but a couple that I think are super relevant. First, God reveals himself as the creator and author of all things. He creates the heavens and the earth. And he makes them in a way that they're hospitable for humanity, that we can dwell and exist in his creation in a way that helps us flourish. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with some of the jargon in scripture, when he says that he made man and woman in his image, uh, it's this beautiful summary statement of the fact that you and I are made to image or bear God's character in some indirect and shadowy ways in the world, even as fallen beings. We're made morally upright. We're able to know in some sense what good and right is. We have this awareness, even in our darkest state, that something exists, that there's a creator that exists that made all things. And ultimately, we're created in a way that we know that we have to make sense of that greater reality that exists outside of us. We're made to image him. As Christians, it's a beautiful, beautiful statement because it also like ducktails into what God does through the work of Jesus in our lives. It means that he is restoring us from all the ways that we've fallen away from that image bearing. He's recreating us into the image of his son in a way that we are made able to live in a flourishing relationship with him again, just like we were in Genesis 2. Uh, he also gives us the power to be stewards. If you see in Genesis 2, he gives us all a creation. He calls Adam to look over things, to cultivate things, to be sub-creators, and also live in harmonious relationships with one another, to experience fulfillment in all relationships, both the horizontal ones with other people and also with him vertically. There's even God's grace present in his warning when he warns Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's an act of love on God's part. He's warning them about danger. God's nature, the beginning of God's story, which is also the beginning of our story, is laid out in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in a really beautiful way. First, he reveals himself as the author of all things. So it's, it's a text that tells us this is the author of everything. And this is also the author of your story, of you and your life. Uh, it's also beautiful in that it reveals God as also being something that we call covenantal. That means that God, especially you'll see this in Exodus 3, the same name that God uses to reveal himself in Exodus 3 is used here in these texts when he says that I am who I am. He's saying that I am not just a God who created things and then sent them to off to see how they do. He's communicating in a way that I am a God who is not only the creator of you, but I'm with you and I am for you. In saying that God is a covenantal God, one way that we can think about it is he's a God that genuinely desires to have a relationship with you and I. And that he will do anything to maintain that relationship. If, if the gospel series we just went through teaches us anything, it means that God overcomes every obstacle that we create or that exists to maintain a relationship with us. He's covenantal, he's loving, he's devoted to us. That's present all the way in the creation account here at the beginning of the Bible.
Genesis 2 gives us a vision of something that the Old Testament calls shalom. And, uh, you know, it's used many times in the Old Testament. And it's not, sometimes it's simply translated as peace. And, you know, that's really reductionistic. But really what it is is this overarching concept of human flourishing. Um, It's a vision for God's perfect design for all of creation and all of humanity, the way that it's designed to exist, the story as it should be. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, another philosopher, Christian philosopher, attempts to describe the, the concept in this way. He says, in speaking of shalom, he says it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in perfect justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all aspects. As God intended it to be. It's a right relationship with him. The author of our story. It's a right relationship with one another us living out that story rightly in harmony with each other and a right relationship with all of creation. When I was younger, uh, I used to hear this more often. I don't hear it very much these days, but I would often hear the Bible uh, described as the most beautiful story ever told. But the most beautiful part of that story is that it's true. (laughs) It's actually a true account of reality. The good parts of it, the bad parts of it, and how God responds to that. The God who created all things in a way that was good and beautiful and right and upright and true for the purpose of enjoying his creation and having an intimate relationship with that creation. The story of the Bible also reminds us of what we just studied in our last series, that the God who created all things is also a God who redeems it that the heart of that story is seen in the life and the work of Christ. That he isn't just somebody who creates us for himself, but he loves us so much, he saves us from ourselves. right? And that God is a redeemer who loves us so much that he's committed to us even when we're not committed to him. You know, that drives to the heart of the dilemma that we face when we wake up one day and find that we're telling more of a story about us than we are about God. Uh, third, the third question is, is what do the story of the Bible tell us about ourselves? Uh, you may or may not know this, but one of the core values that we hear at Resurrection uh, San Diego Church is to practice a beautiful orthodoxy. And embedded in that value, at the heart of that value, is the belief that we draw from Scripture that if something is actually true, then it's actually beautiful. And if something is truly beautiful, then it's also true. And, uh, you know, if you read our values page, one of the things that we talk about is that we live in a world that promotes things that are untrue, lies, and calls them beautiful. And take things that are actually pretty ugly and says that they're beautiful. But when we practice our faith in the context of God's story being our story, we actually present something that's not only beautiful, it's actually the true story about us and how we fit into God's big drama of redemption. 
And, uh, you know, this is a big thing that I've learned to use in evangelism. Uh, I, I was taught a form of evangelism many years ago where you had to give an apologetic defense and convince people of the factual reality of the resurrection. And that's true. That's a part of sharing the gospel. But, you know, I didn't see many people converted that way. But when I began to share the beautiful story of Scripture and how we're actually created for this beautiful life, true shalom, real peace, the way that Genesis 2 describes it, people were instantly relaxed. Their defenses went down. And they'd be like, I'd love to live in a world like that. And then I'd begin to share them, you know, the, the conflict in this drama that God says is actually true reality is that we were designed in this beautiful way for a beautiful relationship, and we've fallen from that. And God loves us so much that he's come to do something about that, and that's the beautiful story of the gospel, and it's actually true. People are much more receptive to that, not because I'm softening it up, but because it tells them the true story of what we were meant for and what went wrong and what God does to bring us back into that relationship with him. Um, <clears throat> this is even true for us as disciples. You know, if, if you're here and you've been a Christian for most of your life, for 20 years or two years, this is true for you and I. This is the paradigm with which you and I are called to think about our lives and the way that we live our lives before the face of God. Uh, there's something that, uh, especially in the New Testament, you see is very prevalent. When you read it, there's something called the indicative imperative paradigm. Basically what that means is any time that you read scripture when God says this is how you're called to live, he doesn't just do it cold cut out of the blue and says, hey, this is it. He always begins with indicative statements. Paul's notorious for this. So he always begins to describe the Christian life, living out God's story as his people by communicating over and over and over where we fit into that story, i.e. who we are, meaning who God says we are. So anytime we're called to a life of discipleship or a path of following after God, of holiness, it's always predicated on scripture helping us calibrate where we are in God's story. This is who you are. You're somebody that God loves. He designed you upright, good, and beautiful. You've fallen from that. This was God's plan. He's done something about that, and he saved you from that fallenness. You're the object of his blessing, his affection. You are his child. You're a member of his family. You're a citizen of his kingdom. So then, in light of that, in light of the beauty of that true story, this is how we're called to live. Uh, it's only until we truly understand the story of Scripture and our place in it rightly that we can experience life the way that God has intended us to. We can only live into who God already says we are when we understand the story rightly. And as we're gonna see in this series, we're gonna explore different ways that we get really jumbled up about that uh, through our own sin, through suffering that we experience in life, and then we're gonna consider where the story ends, where we're headed. Uh, I think some of you may know this about uh, my mother. I'm not sure if I've shared it from the, the podium, but my mother was adopted in... Uh, she was adopted by this, my grandparents, this amazing uh, Methodist, Swedish Methodist couple who actually fostered 55 kids over the span of their lives. And they would go on to adopt four of those kids. And my mother was one of them. 
And when I was a young man in my teenage years and a young adult, my mom began this journey. She never knew who her mother was. She didn't know why she was put up for adoption. She began this journey of trying to find out why she was put up for adoption and why her mother didn't keep her. And you know, at the time, she had a lot of life stuff going on. She was struggling with alcoholism. She was drinking a lot. And uh, she really, honestly, she just wasn't very happy. And she began this journey of doing all this research of finding out uh, who her mother may have been. And it took her about 10 years to find out who her mother was. But eventually she found out the name of her mother. She found out where she lived. She found out that she had two half-brothers. She eventually made contact with those two half-brothers. And they had this wonderful relationship. And her two half-brothers really shared with her who her mother was. And you know, it was like she went through this radical transformation internally in her heart. My mother found peace and she was able to live with a sense of acceptance and peace and wholeness. She actually got sober in that season of her life uh, after she found out where she came from. Because what she learned was her mother was a woman who was living in a very devout Irish Catholic culture. She was a single woman. Uh, she had my mother out of wedlock. She had no way to take care of her, and she genuinely thought the best thing was to give her up for adoption and hope that she would be with a family who would take care of her. My mom was able to be present in her life and to live with freedom when she was able to make sense of where she came from and who she was. It changed her. Uh, understanding where you and I come from is critical. Um, Understanding who we are, not just who we think we are, the story that we tell about ourselves on any given day, but who God says we are, especially who we are to him, and where he's taking us is paramount. It's indispensable to living the life that God says we're meant to live. The picture that we see in Genesis 2. You know, in writing this sermon and thinking about this uh, series concept, I was reading all these articles and I got caught in this rabbit trail uh, about storytelling and how it affects human beings at such a core level. And I found all this fascinating stuff that I'm largely ignorant about. So if you're here and you're a neuroscientist, feel free to correct me after the sermon. But uh, I was reading all these articles about brain research that has been done by psychologists and neuroscientists, and they've discovered that storytelling and story receiving is central to how we operate as human beings. Uh, not just in the spiritual sense, as we're considering this morning, when we think about scripture, even in the way that God's created our brains and the way that we operate in life. Some of the things that they discovered are that uh, we tend to encode memories about ourselves, we derive value, belief systems, and we encode them in our brains and our memory banks in terms of stories. Uh, when a person is listening to a story, think about like if you're reading a story to your child or somebody's telling you a really captivating story, how engaging it is for you, right? There's something almost magical about a good story and a good storyteller. Well, the research shows that uh, it engages all these complex neurological networks in our brains that affect our emotional systems, uh, it affects our language processing skills, all these complex neural networks that we engage in making meaning of things when we hear a story. Uh, here's the part, this is my favorite part. <laughs> this part, you can't make this up. None of these are Christian neuroscientists or psychologists, but this is literally what they discovered. 
they said that when a person is particularly engaged in hearing a story, it engages their brain function and that the brain waves and the person hearing the story actually synchronizes with the storyteller on an emotional and a neurological level. And they said the effect is so profound that it will begin to shape and influence and change the way the story hearer thinks about their life. It'll change their core beliefs and it'll change the way that they view themselves in the world. I mean, you can't make, you can't make that up. When you think about scripture, whether you know it or not, when you read the Bible, what's happening is that the author and the creator of the universe is speaking to you personally. He's telling you a story. And his spirit is helping you see and understand the reality and the beauty of that story and how it's about you, even though it's first and foremost about God. And through the power of his spirit, he changes who we are by our very nature. I mean, it just blew me away. I was like, <laughs> this is going to be a joke. These people are basically saying that the power of the spirit and the power of the word works. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but in science only, uh, not supernaturally. Uh, <clears throat> they said that even the act of retelling that story that a person hears reinforces that belief in their understanding, their sense of clarity about themselves and how they understand the world. If you read the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, what is it? Hearing the story. Believing the story through God's spirit, retelling the story to other people. Whose story? Story about you, the story about God, the story about God. When we hear God's drama, when we see God's work unfolding in our lives that connects us to that drama in a, in a, in a correct way, when we see ourselves as a part of God's story, uh, God begins to speak to the very heart of our being, revealing to us what it means to actually know him. And in truly knowing him and living in a relationship with him, we begin to actually experience the delight that the psalmist talks about. You know, Jesus' command in the New Testament is it just a command to do certain things to earn favor with God. His command to follow him as his disciples is a call for you and I to align our loves, our desires, and our longings with his. For you and I to learn how to want what God wants. Uh, for us to desire what he desires. For you and I to hunger and thirst after God and to live in a world where he is truly our all in all. Where he's the center of our universe. Not where we're the center of our own. In short, to seek the kingdom of God, as Jesus would say. And in seeking the kingdom of God to experience the shalom, the peace and wholeness that God promises every one of us. The idea that our longings and desires can be fulfilled in us creating a narrative where we're the star of the show is a lie that the world convinces us of and sometimes we convince ourselves of that God will not allow because he loves us too much. God will not allow us to live in a really bad comedy that has a tragic ending when he's offered us a role in this beautiful drama that has the perfect ending. And that's the heart of the story of scripture. 
Even when you and I want to tell a story about ourselves with our lives, God loves you too much to let you do that. And we're going to be thinking about in coming weeks how God will take things and take them out of our lives when he sees that they are idols that we are creating to make a story about ourselves. You know, I try and remind Jack, my two-year-old, that every time I take away a toy that I don't want him to have, and he starts screaming, right? It's a painful reminder like, hey, this is how I act with God on any given day of the week, (laughs) but I can't have what I want. But God loves us too much to let us settle for a story that isn't true about ourselves. Uh, What we're going to see is that whether it's through suffering that's not of our own making in life, God stays near us. And he recalibrates us to the story that we're a part of, the story that's about him and how he's redeeming creation. Even if it's from our sins, like we've talked about in the last couple weeks, God doesn't go away from us. He comes near us and he saves us from the worst parts of ourselves that he is redeeming and changing into the image of his son, into who we're meant to be. Let's pray and thank God for the reality that his story is beautiful and good and right and true and uh, it's better than ours and that he's drawing us into it. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you that you are a God who takes joy in making himself known. We thank you for the reminder from your creation story that we were made Uh, fearfully and wonderfully with a beautiful purpose in mind that we were created to be uh, people who resemble you and display your goodness and your love and your character and your beauty to the world. Father, we thank you especially that uh, even though we try and create a story that's all about us and prop ourselves up, that you love us so much you won't allow us to settle for that. And that you come near us and remind us that in hearing the beautiful story of scripture, that you're the main character, that we actually have the privilege and the joy of being part of that story, that we experience the true delight and desires of our hearts, delights and desires that you give us and then fulfill for us. It's in your son's name that we pray these things, amen.